got this document and they go, yeah, but we want to actually implement it. We've got ideas about electrifying our building stock and our, our transportation and all these other things. How can we do that? Well, you can do it through forming a CCA, procuring the energy, being local government, the revenues come back to the local community. Unlike an investor-owned utility, which is a private company, and the profits go back to the shareholder. This gets invested back. The local CCAs are governed by elected boards, so it's your elected officials. It's not by private sector. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, and in episode 28, we are venturing out to the West Coast as we welcome to the program Beth Vaughn, Executive Director of the California Community Choice Association, a 20-year veteran of the energy industry out in the great state of California. Beth tells us a little bit about her journey from Canada to New Zealand and how she ended up in the great state of California, plus her experience in the energy industry, going from the California Co-Generation Council to what she's doing now leading the California CCA. A lot of good information in there. We hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, please welcome to the program, Miss Beth Vaughn. Born just outside of Toronto, and I did my undergraduate degree at Queen's University in Ontario there in Kingston. Um, Loved it. But, you know, I... And I had the job set up. I was going to work at Agricultural Canada. I was working in kind of the water, seeing water and soil and... I just thought there was a big adventure to be had. So on the same day, God, I'm not even going to tell you what year because that will date me. Um, I had to sign the, you know, to become an employee. I got my student permit from New Zealand that I had just applied for on a, a whim because one of my professors was from New Zealand and I found him fascinating. He'd worked in Nepal. He'd done all this great stuff for communities, community based Um, Anyway, long story short, I went off to New Zealand. I got caught up there. I was being funded by the largest government department in New Zealand, and they disappeared halfway through my thesis. So, um, and it was a master's of science in uh, geomorphology, geology. And I kept getting these checks, right? Every month. And I, who are they coming from and what's going on? And so I'm a curious person. I ask way too many questions. And pretty soon I was brought in while I'm still working on my thesis, brought in to work for the brand new environment ministry that was formed from there. Uh, they got me a work permit and, and that's in New I Zealand, actually, right? in New Zealand. Okay. And I actually completed my thesis on the same day that they introduced this big law reform I worked on. So I could spend the whole podcast talking about this, but they redid all of government in New Zealand back in the eighties because they were broke, right? In 1984, the government New labor government that came in, opened the books, discovered they were broke, had to implement right-wing economic theory, which is not right-wing for for, for the United States. (laughs) It's a little different, their politics down there. Anyways, long story short is I had these just one opportunity after another. I worked on this law reform about the resource management uh, law, and it had to do with the sustainable management of the natural and physical environment. So when I think about what I do today... That was the really the genesis of it, because yes, it included energy. It was the first kind of foray into climate change. I went off with the New Zealand delegation to the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, where we could talk about the law reform that we'd done. So you reform all of government, then reformed all of how you do everything in government, 
I, um, in terms of the natural and physical environment. So physical, including the, the cities and communities, and we streamline permitting and all this stuff that I'm young and I think, oh, this is how the world works, right? And then I come to California. Well, sure, you can do that in a country where there's less than 5 million people and you don't share a border with anybody. Now you come to California where, what are we up to 40 million people? There are so many stakeholders, so much engagement. I mean, I don't know. My perspective as a, a Canadian Kiwi in California is California will make it as complex as possible. We are the, the epicenter of like, yeah, okay, those guys did it over there, but we need to reinvent the wheel here. No, no, it's got to be California made, you know. <laughs> so that's my experience here. And it gets frustrating sometimes. You know, I do think we need to, there's lessons to be learned from other states, other countries. And, and on the other hand, we are the leader, you know, certainly with AB 32, which was the Assembly Bill 32 passed in 2006, which really looked at solutions to climate change and created the allocation and trading of carbon and our whole marketplace here. So that's that's my background. You're the, the second geologist we've had on the show uh, in the last month, so so we, we feel good about we, we're, we're trending in the right direction. We had our, our guy Brett Eastep, uh, who had a very similar, you know, what we're starting to find is that, you know, it, you're seeing folks like yourself, like a Brett Eastep, where, you know, again, y'all went to college, you, you studied geology, biology, whatever, and then your heart was not necessarily from a corporate side, but again, wanting to make the world a better place, and again, here you are doing it, so kudos to you. How did you... A, end up in California, and B, going from New Zealand, where, like you said, it was five, mil- five million people, you know, it was everything was, was available to you as far as let's try something new. There was a lot of creativity there. Then you come to the bureaucratic nature that is the United States, you know, tack on the fact that it's California. How did you stay committed and, and not lose your way as far as, or, or never lose your nerve when it came to going through the changes from New Zealand to now California, starting out early on? I married an American. The first mistake, according to my mother. Um, <laughs> you couldn't meet a nice Kiwi boy. You had to meet an American down there. Um, and he's from California. Okay, um, so that's how you... So, okay, there you go. So you married into California, essentially. I did, although my children, I have twin boys, and they were born in um, in New Zealand. Okay. So in a time of pandemic, right? It's like, hey, guys, guess what? You have three passports, so... Very nice. <laughs> Not leaving you wealth, but I'm leaving you the ability to live and work all over the world. So, there you go. Um, but you notice I didn't run away and disappear. I am actually in the East Bay of San Francisco. I, I well, that, and that's what impresses me the most is the fact that, like I said, you doubled down and stayed there d- despite yeah. everything that has gone on in the last what twenty plus years that you've had to deal with. Uh, now, okay, well, that's a personality flaw. I am. Um, addicted to this stuff, right? So I come up through the sciences, as you said, but I ended up in the minister's office, uh, the environment minister's office in parliament. I spent five years in the New Zealand parliament because I learned that no matter how great the science is and your analysis and the facts, unless you can communicate it to people, the business that you're in doesn't make a difference. So I became the master of the 30 second elevator pitch, right? If you happen to get in the elevator and there's the prime minister, what am I going to say? Right. So there's an opportunity. What can I pitch to him? That's going to make a difference that he's going to care about. Um, when I did come here to California, having had that experience, I swore to myself, I wouldn't live in Sacramento, which I, I don't, <laughs> I didn't want to repeat 
that world. However, I do spend a lot of time up there with legislators. And, and the reason why I double down in California, quite honestly, is um, it's an exciting place to be. There is innovation. And it's not just in Silicon Valley. Although Silicon Valley, when I showed up in like 2000, you know, it was all about the IT revolution. It's also about the clean energy revolution. The IT world embraced it and said, hey, how can we do this better? I mean, look at what Google, Apple, the whole data center, you know, these, these folks, well, corporate America, right? I think the majority of it embraces environmental sustainability. Um, it's become, it's part of a risk management mitigation, quite honestly, right? So I think it's super exciting. I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think the leadership has been incredible here, a lot of foresight, but also a lot of challenges, right? There's, like I was saying, there's a lot of players here. So if we can all use our collective Wisdom, and, and I'll relay that to the CCA world. So when it first community choice aggregation began, you know, back in, before my time, actually, I was involved back in 2002 when the, when the law was passed, AB 117. However, when I showed up on the scene, I've been working in energy for years, and I saw the fights going on. It was like a competition between the investor and utilities. So think Pacific Gas Electric, Southern California Edison, San Diego Gas Electric. Those are the three big IOUs that we think of here, they were competing these little CCAs, community choice aggregators, which our local government were coming in and trying to take a portion of their market. We're going to procure the energy. We're going to be the energy service providers to our communities. And I remember working at the time, I was executive director for the California Co-Generation Council. So Mike, just like you, I was kind of, I was in the natural gas industry with my folks thinking, oh, these guys are like a fly on the wall. They're, they're a disruptor. Not sure I like that. Changes the rules of the game. You know, the more I looked at it, the more appeal it had for me. But, but to go back, there was this competition and it got a little bit nasty right back in 2009, 2010, prior to the very first CCA launching. We're in clean energy. Well, even earlier in San Joaquin, who failed to launch. So some of the politics got pretty nasty. The marketing campaigns that the big IOUs did against uh, the CCAs at the time. So that went on for several years. There was actually a law passed, Senate Bill 790, which established kind of a CCA Bill of Rights so that it made it a fair playing field for competition of customers. So that was kind of 10 years ago. Now, here I am, 2021, and I do joint filings with those investor utilities. We get together and try to work out solutions. So in terms of like the reliability question here in California, huge issue. Clearly with the Texas events, you guys have just done a series on ERCOT. We had the extreme heat storms in August and September. Mm -hmm. So we're very sensitive. We have a huge reliability reform going on. Well, you know what we did is last spring, June, July, we partnered with Southern California Edison to think about how can we rethink reliability in the state. And we've put a filing in together. We've been working on it together. And just recently now are working with Pacific Gas and Electric is kind of joining our little hub of, okay, well, you've got some interesting ideas about deliverability and the temporal aspect. And so so I'm thinking it's become much more constructive. That's the world I love to work in. I, I really like to problem solve. I'm addicted to it. The people that work with me are addicted as well. You know, that's a great story how you ended up where you're at now. But now that you've brought up the CCA, why don't you tell all the listeners exactly what the Cal CCA stands for, the mission behind it, and what you're trying to accomplish? CCA, Community Choice Aggregation, that's what is actually in the law. That's the acronym. And you might hear it as being a community choice energy program. There's different, different descriptions of it. And certainly it's happening in other states as well. But here in California, it's based on 
Assembly Bill 117 by Carol Migdon that was passed in 2002. And it basically allowed this energy choice and allowed local governments to come together, communities. So when I say local governments, it could be cities, it could be counties, it could be them coming together and creating a joint powers authority, and they can aggregate. So that's where the the A comes from, is you pull together your load, your customer load, and form these different mechanisms, like a joint powers authority, you create this entity that then is allowed by the law to go out and to purchase clean energy and provide it to their community. And so they come in different sizes. It's not a one size fits all. It could be a single city, could be a very small single city, or it could be, I think our largest from a geographical position now is what we call 3CE. So Central Coast Community Energy, which has five different counties now, all the way from Santa Cruz down to Santa Barbara. So they do come in different shapes and sizes. And with it, they're meeting the unique needs of their community. A community may form a CCA for different reasons. One, it might be because they were told they had to create a climate action plan to comply with the law here. And they create this and they've got this document and they go, yeah, but we want to actually implement it. We've got ideas about electrifying our building stock and our, our transportation and all these other things. How can we do that? Well, you can do it through forming a CCA, procuring the energy, being local government, the revenues come back to the local community, unlike an investor-owned utility, which is a private company, and the profits go back to the shareholder. This gets invested back. The local CCAs are governed by elected boards, so it's your elected officials, it's not by private sector. Um, However, I would say that a lot of great staffing has occurred over the last five, six years where staff that were formerly with these IOUs have come over to CCAs, professional service folks that have worked with the publicly owned utilities. We have many CEOs that were formerly with POUs are now heading up uh, community choice aggregators. There is also uh, independent power producers, right? Developers, folks from the oil and gas industry or from renewable companies, they've all now come to staff CCAs. So it's a really exciting place to be, super fun. You represent a population of about 10 million people out of the 40 in uh, California. Is that correct? And growing. I'd actually okay. say it's over 11 million now. Wow. How many municipalities are making that number up? Your CCA membership could have more than one municipality in just one membership, right? Correct. correct? If you yeah. been to our website and we have complex maps where we try to track and be exact as possible, but... There are um, currently, right at the moment, 24 community choice aggregators serving the load in California, which is, I don't know, about 60,000 gigawatt hours, maybe more than that, 65. But they're launching all the time. So Leora has, we have a challenge of tracking that. April 1st, Clean Energy Alliance. Well, let me stop. This month of March, March 1st, San Diego Community Power just launched. Now, they're made up, as you said, of several cities, of the city of San Diego, but there's several other cities that joined them in this effort. Clean Energy Alliance, which is sort of North County, uh, is made up at the moment of three cities, and they are looking to add to that. So that would be new launches of CCAs in March, in April. However, in January, that Central Coast Community Energy, they added 10 more cities because they expanded. So to your point, right, you can expand as well. Again, it's California, guys. We like to be as complicated as possible. Do you guys buy strictly clean energy part of the CCA? We procure new build. So our focus for the CCAs has been on new build, clean energy. It started with, say, solar and wind. Those are 
pretty inexpensive, right? The price is dropping. But it soon became definitely, as we saw the problems going on with reliability, I would say hybrid. So you see a lot of solar plus storage, a lot of that coming on. Also standalone storage. Then what we've seen as they've expanded into this area just this past year, and we do an annual, we do it more than annually, but in November of every year, we make an announcement about where are we, the CCAs in terms of their procurement. So what we saw last year is some of the CCAs come together jointly because you have a greater buying power. And uh, um, some of them got together and contracted with Ormat Technologies in Mono County, for example, for a new geothermal build. So that's going to be the first new geothermal plant in California. So that's more expensive, but it brings the attributes that we need here in California of clean energy and reliability around the clock. The other thing that they've now ventured into, and it's the first, is long duration storage. I don't know how much folks have talked about that, and there's different definitions. At the moment, under the California Public Utilities Commission, in terms of their integrated resource planning, that we are a part of because we're all load-serving entities. Long-duration storage is defined as anything, you know, greater than eight hours. So not the four-hour batteries, but anything greater than eight hours. And often people think of pump storage Mm -hmm. as as being an example of that. So a group of CCAs, 13 of them, went out over the summer months with a request for information to find out more information. I have to say some of my investor-owned utility friends after the fact said to me, I wish we'd done that. What a brilliant idea. Let's go out and Find out what's in the marketplace. And you can kind of graph out, you know, look at all the different technologies of which I think they got about 58 or something, 60 expressions of interest. And there's there's things that are viable, commercially viable today versus things that are in the RD&D world. But based upon that, they were able to put together a request for offer, an RFO, and that was issued in October. All the bids were due in December. They're in the process of shortlisting. And so to your point, you know, with Steve Berbrick and others, actually, I think we briefed Steve before he left the Cal ISO. But we're in close contact with the ISO, with the Public Utilities Commission, and with the legislature to say, hey, here's what we're finding. Here's what we're headed towards. We want to execute these contracts in the fall. And what they've done is that eight of the CCAs just formed California Community Power, CC Power. And um, there's eight core founding members, but others are invited to join. Heard some talk that maybe they'll expand beyond CCAs and add publicly owned utilities. But that allows them to do these more complex projects. So it's not a substitution for the local procurement, which is what the local folks want, right? They want to be in control of their own destiny of that clean energy content. They also want local programs, which we should talk about as well, because right now I'm just talking about procurement. This group, and and it's being watched very carefully because we have bills in the legislature around this for reliability. We need something long duration. We need something reliable. Is it geothermal? Is it pump storage? Is it something that has these round the clock attributes? Um, so, so again, the CCAs are leading in that area. It's super, super exciting. So the million-dollar question I have, and it kind of dovetails with what happened last summer and what, what we just experienced here in Texas with ERCOT, is with a CCA versus IOU, where does the grid play in all this for y'all? So it's a partnership, right? Like I said before, on the procurement side, there was a real competition with utilities. Utilities, quite honestly, most of them are long in terms of their procure, their generation for their own customers because demand has left, 
right? Departing load customers, we call them. We've left the service of the IOU. We still have to pay for uh, departing load charge, we call it, for the uh, generation that was entered, contracts entered into for 20, 30 years on their behalf. However, we work in partnership. The CCA does not do the distribution side of things. That is the utility. So we are a partner with them on that. So when you think of the wildfires, that is still PG&E or Edison. It's still their wires. In fact, San Diego Gas and Electric announced in fall of 2018 that because there is such a CCA movement in their territory down in San Diego, that they want to get out of the generation business and just do the wires. Cal CCA is just not an association that members belong to, to learn from and so on and so forth. You're actually actively involved with every single customer you have. So you're much different than other organizations around the country, whether it's in natural gas or power, it doesn't matter what the association's in. A lot of them are just gathering hubs for information. You're actually doing stuff and making, writing bills and going to the government and trying to get things passed, right? Yeah. So let me maybe explain a little bit about Cal CCA, because it's a really good point. These CCAs are the actual energy service providers, right? Cal CCA as a trade association was formed back in 2016 by, I think it was eight CCAs were off, no, five, five, (laughs) and then accelerated pretty quickly. So 2016, I was hired in July of 2017 to come on board, to come and look at what it would take to create a standalone association. And you were, the their first, it, you were their first executive director, correct? I was. Okay. And it grew very rapidly because in 2018, 10 CCAs all launched. So it was just imagine, I don't even have enough time to go out every single board meeting. It was just getting out of control um, in a good way, in a good way. But we would bring them into the fold. So when you think about what was the initial purpose by those founding board members was economies of scale, right? How do we share best practices? How do we even share like a resolution that you need to take to your city council to create a CCA? Something as simple as that. Then it becomes more complex. It's how do you, how do you put, you know, are there some examples of risk management plans? One thing about local government is everything's transparent, right? They have hold public meetings, they're webcast, all the materials are posted on the website, which by the way, the financial community really loves. So coming in as Kelsey say, it was taking a step back and saying, all right, what exactly is our role? And remember, I'd run a trade association before, but each one has its, for some of them, it's about creating events, networking opportunities, and putting people together. For us, it was more urgent. It was really about the viability. How do we ensure the viability of the CCAs and that they will survive the early years? Our job really, when I was brought in and I surveyed all the, the directors is, it was policy oriented. When I said, what's your top three priorities? And, and they were very clear to me that it was really coordinating and advocating the policy development, particularly at the Public Utilities Commission, which I oh, 10 years of experience in already, more than that, then at the legislature. That was our primary focus, how to be the voice for the CCAs. But then we have this incredible infrastructure at Cal CCA now, where we run all these, we have the board and we have all various board committees. Remember, there's elected officials on top of them. So we have a subcommittee for the elected officials. But but below that, we have staff committees. So the regulatory committee, legislative committee, procurement committee, marketing committee, general counsel committee, compliance committee, because as load-serving entities, they have compliance requirements. And, And again, it was the idea of how do you pool knowledge and coordinate. And I'll tell you the reaction that I get from all from the regulatory agencies is thank goodness you did this. Because wow, we don't want to have to deal one-on-one with 24 different entities. It's better if we can speak through you to them. So we're a conduit. And even our website, if you guys go on the website and you look at the drop downs for jobs, 
or requ requests for offers or our CCA programs page. Go and have a look at that. Each of the dropdowns, we provide direct links to each of the CCAs so you can see, okay, who's got a net energy metering program? What does that look like? Oh, let me check that out. And then the CCAs are very competitive. So like electrical, electric vehicle initiatives, they go in there and they try to one-up each other. Well, how can our program be better than their program? Or, or another really great example was, you know, here in California, we've had three consecutive years of awful wildfires. And initially, you know, it hit Sonoma, Napa, and then it's all the way down south into the San Diego area as well. So we have, if you look on there, we wrote to our CCAs and said, what are you doing in terms of resiliency? What are the programs you have in place right now or that you're preparing or incentives or dollars that you're giving to the community? And we have that in a single document that we update about every six months now. You could learn from each other. Well, MCE, they're bringing backup power to customers that have medical conditions to make sure that, you know, when the lights go out, because it's not just the wildfires, we have here public safety power shutoffs. Has anyone talked to you about those PSPSs where you get very little warning and then the investor-owned utilities, right, or the, the wires folks proactively go out and de-energize when we have high winds. We have the conditions for fire, for wild, wildfires. So now suddenly you've got all these people without power. What do you do about that? So that's a whole another area we could talk talk about it. You should have a whole, yeah, another podcast on that because <laughs> All right. really interesting folks that have done some amazing work in that area. From a CCA standpoint, before you guys came on the scene, what was anything being done to address these issues? Or is that part of what you guys have been able to do is bring these underlying issues that have been plaguing 40 million people that they really didn't have a voice? So CCA's elected officials, they're accessible, right? They're, they've been elected as you know, the mayor of the city council or the supervisor of the county or whatever. So, you know, for every entity that's part of a joint powers authority, or if it's the city itself is the CCA, they've got a board of electeds on there. And they are there for people that are taking community choice service or investor-owned utility service as well. So they are there for everybody. And what I like to think about when I think about local government is I, energy is kind of the connective tissue across all sorts of areas. So water, right? Energy. Has <laughs> we learned that the hard that. way here in Texas. Exactly. I remember talking to a new city that was forming to become CCA. And they said to me, one of the reasons that they really wanted to form CCA was to decrease their crime rate. And I went, what? What do you mean? They said, because then we're, we can get new streetlights in here. We can, you know, the revenues come back to our city and we can make a difference. And I had never put the two together. So when you have PSPS events and de-energization, I would have to say the first thing those CCAs did was talk to the, for their county or their city, the emergency service folks, right? What do you guys need? How can we help? I mean, if anything, those guys were telling the investor-owned utilities who have the distribution lines where the critical areas were. They had better maps. They had better knowledge. And so they could come in and in particular look at the critical facilities bring in the backup power, set up the central command. I mean, that was back in like 2017, 2018. Now we're getting even more sophisticated in terms of being proactive instead of reactive because we have PSPS events. Here in California with the solar roofs program, a lot of schools put in rooftop solar. CCAs looked at it and went, you got to add storage to that, <laughs> right? That's kind of a no brainer. Let's create little microgrids. 
I think every, almost every community choice aggregator we have is involved in, in building microgrids in, in some way, shape or form. And it's, it's extreme. If I think about the variability, so up in Humboldt County, that's called Redwood Coast Energy Authority. They have a big microgrid they're creating at the airport. We do public webinars last Friday of every month. And so we did a big one on that area. So that you've got that microgrid going on up there, which will help support the Coast Guard and all the critical facilities that are needed in Humboldt County. Now, down in Lancaster, the city of Lancaster, which is inland, it's um, in the Central Valley of California, they have two microgrid projects going on that are focused at low-income communities, disadvantaged communities. And what they're doing is some pilots partnering with the private industry folks and with the California Energy Commission, where they got some funds from the program there, And everyone's watching again to see, well, does this pilot work? What kind of technologies are you guys experiencing? Are you you playing with? Based on the results of that, like I said, they're competitive. Another CCSA, okay, let me take that example. Now I'm going to apply it over here at the Rancheria with the First Nations community over here. And let's try something else to create a microgrid or whatever the program du jour is. So you've seen a lot more innovation then, essentially, since the onset of these CCAs and we ever saw what was going on with the IOUs? Well, you know, and I don't want to take away from the fact that I do feel the investor-owned utilities really, you know, they have got electric vehicle networking divisions and everything else. The difference with CCAs is how agile they are. Okay. Right? We don't have to go and get something blessed by the Public Utilities Commission. We are regulated. That's not, we're not unregulated. Some people think that. We are load-serving entities. We have compliance requirements around our resource adequacy program, reliability, which I know Steve Berbert was talking about, around uh, renewable portfolio standards, around like a ton of things we have to comply with. On the other hand, though, they are directed by their boards and they can move forward. They can pilot something. They can learn the lessons. They can switch tactics and say, mm, that EV program didn't work. We're going to adjust it. We're going to try something else over here. They can join together and create the South Bay of San Francisco. Several CCAs and the Public and Utilities have created this huge charging network because they simply all got together, spoke the same language. Again, though, we're, we also partner with um, the utilities to replace some of the dirty power plants like in Oakland, uh, the Dynagy plant there. East Bay Community Energy and Pacific Gas and Electric are working together on that. Okay, so that's the other thing, too, is we're partnering with all of those folks because, and I think Steve alluded to this in, in the podcast he did with you, is you don't become clean energy overnight. Gas is still needed for the transition. And I was, I was very interested, for example, MCE, the first CCA to launch in 2010, they have a project with a company called Wellhead where they've, they've taken a natural gas facility, but they've paired it with a lithium-ion battery. From that, the way they're operating it is over time, they'll reduce the use of the gas plant, you know, and, and, and be able to increase their renewables. Part of the issue we have here right now is the CCAs in particular, and I can show you graphics where we are procuring above and beyond what we've been asked to procure. The, the thing is, is that it isn't necessarily all online, example, for example, by July 1st of this summer. So here in California, we have a 2021 summer readiness proceeding going on at the Public Utilities Commission and the Cal ISO and others. And we're trying to figure out how, how do we ensure that our planning reserve margin, you know, we're thinking about increasing that. We're trying to figure out where can we get every last bit of energy and capacity to get us through the summer. 
our procurement shows that in the later years, 2022, 2023, even the replacement for Diablo Canyon, so that's the nuclear facility that will be decommissioned in 2024, one unit comes down and 25 the last unit. So how do we prepare? That's why we're doing the long duration storage or the geothermal or what have you, but how do you make sure it's online in time? And that's permitting, interconnection agreements. It's again, all these agencies working together um, in order to make sure it happens like we hope it happens. Something you mentioned, and, and, and this has been, again, to your point, as far as we all want to go clean. It's not going to happen overnight. Your 10 years as executive director of the California Co-Generation Council, how has that shaped kind of your perspective and helped with you with maneuvering between the IOUs and the CCAs? <laughs> Loaded question. So I was, I became executive director in 2007 and we were in a hot mess of uh, an argument with the utilities. I don't know if you guys know this, but coming out of the energy crisis here is uh, the, the CHP plants kept the lights on, combined heat and power, but we were upside down in terms of payment. And so I'll tell you what, what happened honestly is there was litigation going on and we ended up in, it looked like we're all headed to the court of appeal in 2009, I want to say. What also happened was federal law was enacted such that the mandatory put so of, of power from a combined heat, a qualifying facility, QFs, if you guys are in the industry, that was ending for anything greater than 20 megawatts. So all of these, because on April 1st of 2009, CalISO launched, right? That was the beginning of our independent system operator. So anyways, all the stars aligned, April 1st, 2009, we saw disaster. We talked with the utilities and others. And then we went to the Public Utilities Commission and we said, we need a solution. We need to have some contracts for these facilities. I don't know what I was representing like 3,500 megawatts. Long story short is we ended up in a settlement that went on for, I don't know, almost two years. And so I worked very closely with the IOUs. In fact, we tracked, we had a, a birth, a wedding and a death in our little family of the three IOUs, the three big organizations representing combined heat and power and the utility attorney, which represents the rate payer. The group of us were together. I think we counted over 500 meetings. So I tend to think that they hired me because I have this experience of really working on very complex problems with partners. We're not all going to agree on everything, but we are going to work together and we're going to try to figure out the solution. And I feel like that's where we are in California right now is we have the CCAs have been these disruptors along with independent energy service providers, ESPs, just kind of the retail choice folks over in Texas. And we now have an excess of 50 load serving entities. That's not even counting the publicly owned utilities, which I don't know, might be another 20 or so. So we have this patchwork system how do we move forward together? How do we ensure the lights stay on, that our rates are affordable? Because that's a huge issue here that we haven't even touched on. And, and so that's what I would say my experience with the Cogen guys. One thing I said to all my Cogen plants was never give up your interconnection. <laughs> yeah. That's super valuable. And think about how you can be providing a clean energy solution going forward. What would you say the biggest misnomer is about CCAs? For one, I mentioned that they're not regulated. Right. The idea that it's the wild, wild west. Three years ago, it was this idea that, oh, you guys don't have any credit ratings. Oh, you're never going to be able to do 
power purchase agreements with the counterparties. Toss that one out. CCAs are also getting credit ratings every day now. In fact, we held an internal webinar last week with Moody's, Fitch, S&P, Crawl, you know, bond agency. Again, for the members to understand what you need to go through in order to do that. I think we still have a lot of work to do with the finance community, but we definitely we have a very close relationship with uh, trade associations representing all the different developers. Have you been approached by other states about y'all's model uh, when it comes to CCAs and, and uh, what they need to do to maybe uh, kind of copycat or borrow some ideas or suggestions from uh, Beth Vaughn and her group? Yeah, <laughs> I think our um, biggest challenge for me is I just don't have the time. So luckily, remember, there was a whole movement before me. CCAs are formed from the ground up. So there are community organizations that really saw the opportunity local Sierra clubs, others, but there are a couple in particular. Lean Energy is an organization here in California that was formed. The founder was a, a woman who was on the board of MCE, of yeah, Marin Clean Energy, when it first launched. And they've been doing a lot of outreach. I believe there's eight different states now that have some form of CCA. A lot of others are looking at it. Again, their laws are different. So the way it operates, I'm sure is different. We partner with Lean. There's also the Climate Center up in Sonoma, um, they helped get Sonoma Clean Power off the ground. They are really great at doing a lot of outreach to communities within California. They're doing a lot of work with Stockton, Fresno, out in the Central Valley. So we rely, again, on our partners because my bandwidth <laughs> is, has been pretty focused. Um, but we have more staff joining. We have more CCAs joining. So Cal CCA has grown enormously. We're up to 10 staff now. Kind of a two-part question to get you out here with this. One, where is the relationship right now? And I know you said that you guys are starting to do some work together, you and the IOUs, and, 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 and doing some partnership there. So just kind of where is that relationship? And it sounds like it's gotten a lot better and, and, and it's moving forward. And aside from, you know, looking where things are at capacity-wise in, in 2021 and beyond, what's kind of the outlook? Uh, what, what's kind of next on, on Beth Vaughn's plate uh, for the rest of 2021? <sighs> Those are loaded questions. In terms of the relationship with the IOUs, we still fight about certain things, but so does everybody else, right? And I would say the toughest thing we have is this departing load charge that we pay. It is a fee. It's a rate that shows up at the very end of the year prior to going into the new year. We have very little transparency or visibility into it, and yet it can impact the rates of the CCA dramatically. So it's been a thorn in our side. It's called the power charge and difference adjustment. And, and I would say that is definitely an area of contention. There's an argument about cost shifts between customers if you change the PCIA, and yet it goes right to the viability. So we are actually, this is kind of tied to what's up for me in 2021, we're actually running a bill on this. Senate Bill 612. And there is a link on our website that you can go to to understand more about it because it is complex. Basically, our argument is we pay this fee every year, the power charge and difference adjustment, PCIA. We pay it. We just want access to the benefits. Because right now it's something we pay for these attributes for the long-term clean energy, the capacity, the energy. We just want access. The Public Utilities Commission agreed back in the fall of 2018, began a, a proceeding that went on, and we worked with Edison and Commercial Energy, which is an ESP, and over a year ago produced a report of how this could work going forward. It's called Working Group 3 Report. So I am getting nerdy on you here. But we put this out as a group. We reported out after many, many a year of workshops 
gave it to the Public Utilities Commission, and it's now been over a year. So when you go to our website, you're going to see a counter. We have a counter going of how long it's been since there's been a procedural action. And that, to be honest with you, is one of our biggest challenges is this regulatory uncertainty, right? We have a proposal. We all agreed to it. Implement the darn thing. Yeah. So that's what our bill does okay. is it says implement it. So that's one issue. So that's an issue. And in, in with the utilities, we sorted that out. Other big issues about the PCIA, we still are in disagreement. However, where we work well together, like I said, is on reliability. And we are collectively, there's two parts to this proceeding. One is looking at near term, like I said, summer of 2021, what the things look like. And then there's this long term of, is there a rule for central procurement? Is there, well, not wanting to give up our autonomy or for, for procuring, how can we work collectively at this? It's part of why I think, um, you know, we form this joint powers authority to do this, you know, bigger purchases. So that's one thing with the utilities is we work on both sides of it. We also work together on mechanics. Under the law, they, can, they, have, they have to do the billing. We can't do our own billing. So we don't have that interface directly with the customer. I know that's also in the weeds, but we're trying to sort through that with them and work with them, particularly during COVID. So COVID-19 is a really great example of where back in March, they filed IOU emergency plans. And we immediately partnered with them. We've been working with them on... on um, Forgiveness programs for customers. In California, suspended disconnections. We suspended, someone doesn't pay their bill, we transfer them back to the utility. We stopped that as well. So again, it's nitty gritty, but it's how do we work together in these sorts of crisis moments? Um, so, that so, while covers everything else. So for your 10 million customers, they still get a bill from the utility. So you guys actually, their bill doesn't say Cal CCA on it? They get, well, not Cal CCA. Remember, it's the CCA and their name, right. not okay, us. Right, right, right. Yes, 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 yes. So the bill comes, let's say it's from PG&E, but when you hit the generation part of your bill, it says, for me, I'm a Marin Clean Energy customer. So it says MCE on it. And it okay. explains, but can our bills are really complicated here. Um, so we're working on that, how to, we're working with them on how can we make the bill. Simplify um, the, the bills. Transparent. Okay. Okay. But there's like, so there's like a nitty gritty kind of, uh, <laughs> you know. So it's, but, but again, but it, it's, it's a lockstep. I mean, you guys are, are, I mean, again, y'all are, are constantly working with each other though, as far as, or, I mean, cause again, you have to, I mean, there is no, y'all don't have a choice. Either I side. Have really. a, I have a, you know, standing meetings with utility executives to talk through where we might have a sticking point or where can we coordinate better? Knowing that, you know, and they laugh at me, they, they sort of, cause I've known them for years, uh, but the folks laugh at me to say, Hey, you know, when we do a joint filing, it's just the three IOUs. We have to get on the same page. Beth, good luck getting all 24 CCAs on the same page. And we do it. I lied. I'm going to get you out of here with this and, and shame on us. If we didn't, it's March, it's international women's month. You're, I think the second or third female executive we've had on. This much we do know. I mean, women, in, in uh, from an executive standpoint, I mean, we, we've certainly gone out and tried to get as many as we can on here, so we definitely thank you for your time. Uh, you've been an executive, you know, for a number of years now. What What is the climate right now in, in, in the energy market as far as female executives? And, and, you know, here you are. I mean, you're swashbuckling with these guys. You know, you're getting, and I, I'm sure, given your backbone, I'm sure you don't back down from anybody. Your experience as a female executive and where are we at versus where when you started and where we're at right now and kind of what's your outlook? Okay, well, remember I started in geology, right, with my rock hammer? Yeah, true. <laughs> right. And maybe a handful of girls on with this hand and all guys. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. 
so that's how I began my career. And you learn how do you operate in that environment. I look at my job here now, and I just feel like it's a culmination of everything that I did, the science that I did, the working with engineers that I've done, but the communications up in the gov- in, in the um, parliament in New Zealand, learning how to work with legislators and evolving as the gender mix has evolved. And so now at Cal CCA, and Lira, I'll get back to you. I'm sorry, I can't off the top of my head remember, but we have, you know, we had on the board a majority of women. I want to say it's also changing in the investor-owned utilities. They've, PG&E's new president is, and CEO is, is, is a woman. I am seeing an enormous change. I've also watched as some of the women I've really admired at the regulatory agencies here in California, like Carla Peterman, who is the commissioner. Uh, again, we did not agree on a whole lot of things, but she's now a senior executive of Southern California Edison, and I think has possibly contributed to this solutions-based culture that we have. But I just I just feel like... Um... But that's fair, though, for you to say, though. I mean, you've been in this environment. So, I mean, you've seen where guys, what their mentality is versus what females' mentality is when it comes to decision. I mean, like you said, I mean, you talked about being in hunkering down for two years, uh, in a, you know, with, with IOUs as far as, you know, what... Yeah, I was thinking back to that. And, and I think that, you know, I think having... There were women, more of us involved in that conversation, and maybe that's why we could do a settlement. I, I don't want to dismiss what how the men operate and, and, and all the great progress they have made over the years. I just think, I feel like we are in a culture of, like I said, at the Trade Association, what I love is it's about best practices. It's about sharing. End of the day, remember, they're competing in the market for the clean energy. They're all procuring, they're all going after the, the green electrons. One could argue there may be a scarcity at, at times in the market, but there is there's just this collaborative spirit People come in and they just say how much they enjoy that, not just at the trade association, but at the CCA is working there as well. They're, they're working with their local government counterpart parties. Like I said, you have wildfire events and it's all hands on deck. It's, you know, what can we do to help? We had these extreme heat storms in August and September immediately. Sure, it's not our wires, but what can we do? Make sure that we're scheduling all of our load. Make sure that, you know, we were on high alert Governor's office was calling, the regulatory agencies were calling, we were calling, you know, I thought we coordinated really well through August so that by the time we had the same concern over Labor Day in September, we were all texting on top of it, doing what we can do, spirit of collaboration, and the the customers responded, because we have that touch point with our communities they responded as well. I mean, talk about shedding load and working together. We, we got through um, those crisis periods. Now, don't want to repeat that. So <laughs> how do we get organized for this summer? And the wildfire season now is getting longer and longer, right? As is and our I'll hurricane honest, season. Yep. Well, same. Yeah. And I'll yeah. be honest with you, Chair, we've had this pandemic. We're working virtually. We were already set up to do both in-person and virtual at Cal CCA. But I'll tell you, the toughest months for me was really September, end of August and September when we couldn't breathe. I could not go out of my house and breathe. The sky was red. Yeah. It was I remember devastating. That, I remember that picture at, uh, what was it, uh, what, Levi Stadium. They couldn't yeah. practice because you had, you know, the entire sky was red. I can only imagine. So it's a real issue for us. And again, I think being, CCA is being community-based. They're really in touch with the people in need. They can really identify solutions to the problems and they can be very agile, very quick to institute new programs, pilots, what have you, but also lessons learned. 
maybe that didn't work. Okay, let's switch and do something else. You know, you can admit defeat and move on to something bigger and better. Thank you once again to Beth Vaughn for joining us here on the Green Insider Podcast. You can catch all of the Green Insider Podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play, as well as Spotify. Episode 29 coming up next week. We welcome Miss Kay McCall, Executive Director of Renewable Energy Alliance Houston, to the program. Don't forget to give us a follow on Apple iTunes if that's the way you follow us here on the Green Insider Podcast. Make sure you leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy and just energy in general than you did before you stopped by. It's the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. And we'll never be royal. It's a one in our blood. That kind of luck's just ain't for us. We crave a different kind of buzz. Let me be easy.